Welcome to the inaugural episode of Arguendo, the Veterans Law Podcast with Amy and Amy. The show that focuses on oral arguments and trends at the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims and the Federal Circuit. And maybe, if we're really inspired, lucky or not, the Supreme Court. The United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims is now in session. We're your hosts. I'm Amy Odom. I'm Amy Kretkowski. We're going to spend the next, I don't know, three days <laughs> talking about three cases, all from the Veterans Court. We did have some cases from the Federal Circuit, but those went away. But we are going to spend the next bit of time talking about three cases from the Veterans Court, Kearns v. McDonough, Furco v. McDonough, and Bowles v. McDonough. Kearns was argued before the en banc court on June 15th, 2023. Nick Esterman argued for the government, and Adam Luck of Glover Luck argued for the veteran, James Kearns. There's a little bit of complication in the process of this case, so we'll just uh, summarize what happened leading up to the oral argument. In December 2019, Mr. Kearns received a statement of the case on his legacy appeal. In January 2020, he appealed using a Form 10182. He opted into the AMA. He checked that box to opt into the AMA. In March of 2020, he got a letter from the board saying that both deadlines, the deadline to appeal in legacy and the deadline to opt into the AMA had both passed. And the following week, his attorney filed a notice of appeal with the court. So of course, the secretary can't find the decision because there's only a letter, there's no decision. And he files a motion to dismiss because the court doesn't have jurisdiction over a board letter. He argues that a letter is not a final board decision. While the appeal is pending at the Veterans Court, the board then issues two more letters, each giving him 90 days to submit additional evidence. Back in March of 2022, the case is heard before a three-judge panel, Chief Judge Bartley, Judge Greenberg, and Judge Jaquith. And then in November, it's sent to be heard by the en banc court. Any predictions on or any ideas of what happened there, Amy, why it got sent for en banc review. I think the issues here are pretty big. The first one about the court's jurisdiction over a letter. I know that my firm has worked on issues, similar issues about the board's jurisdiction over what isn't traditionally viewed as a decision. We have we never got a decision in any of those cases. They ended up going away for other reasons, but one was called to an en banc court. So this seems to be a continuation of the court's investigation into the bounds of its jurisdiction, what constitutes a final appealable board decision. But also, I think a really important detail here is that Mr. Kearns is not the only veteran that this happened to, and everybody agrees that there were, what, was it 1,200 veterans? Yeah. Adam estimated. He estimated 1,200. The secretary could not provide any information on the exact number of people who this happened to. Refused refused to provide, I would say. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Refuse to. That is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The notion that the secretary couldn't find that information is debatable. And but he but Adam did give an estimate based on just information from his practice that there were approximately twelve hundred veterans. And I'm imagining that number's low. Yeah. But he estimated that there's around twelve hundred who this happened to. So, yeah. So that's part of the uh, the en banc calling, I would think. For class, is that what you're, you're yeah, getting Yeah, also that there's 1,200 people out there. Everybody, the secretary and Mr. Kearns all agree that there are more people out there that VA wrongly told their appeals were untimely. And the secretary is refusing to affirmatively reach out to those people or do anything to in the affirmative to fix the mistake here, citing the administrative burden that would go into identifying all of these people because, according to the secretary, the board didn't track this closely. So the secretary says, we can't do this because we'd have to go back and manually look at all the notices of disagreement that came in during this period that we were wrongly telling people that the appeals weren't timely and figure out 
from there because there's no electronic way for them to do it. So I think that might have also, that's a pretty big question. Is that, an, is the administrative burden in this case sufficient, a, a sufficient excuse for not identifying and affirmatively fixing these errors? But I think they get into that a little bit in, in the oral argument. And I think this keeps coming up. If you want to look at, you know, themes that you see in these oral arguments that keep coming up is how much time should the court be spending thinking about VA's, the agency's administrative burden? How much, how much weight should it give to that as a concern that, that should sway its decision one way or the other? I think one thing to note that probably, and, and maybe this is like an inside baseball sort of thing, but I imagine after the three-judge panel, I'm guessing they circulated a panel decision that maybe was favorable to, to Mr. Kearns. And I imagine that some of the other judges called it to, to panel on Bonk, likely because they're thinking of possibly overturning Cerullo, which we'll hear a little bit about when we get into the oral argument here. And they can't do that with a panel. They, if they want to overturn Cerullo, they need to do that on Bonk. Mm-hmm. Let's get on to the oral argument. Secretary goes first. Yes. Amy, please explain to us. Amy's going to cover the secretary's part of the argument and explain why the secretary is going first. I think it's because the secretary filed a motion to dismiss here. And since really this is a hearing on the motion to dismiss, the secretary got to go first. I don't have any confirmation on that. It just seems like the obvious answer. But it does. it also doesn't make a ton of sense because even though the secretary filed the motion, it's still appellant's burden to show jurisdiction. So even though it's appellant's burden, the secretary gets to go first. And I don't know that this is, I think that's the practice in this court based on my experience, but I'm not sure if that's how other federal courts operate. Do you know anything, Amy? No, I was hoping that you'd be able to enlighten me on this one because I was bum fuzzled about why as soon as Nick got up there, I was like, wait, hey, wait, what? Why do you get to go first? Why do you get a rebuttal? But that makes a absolute that makes a lot of sense. So that's why I think he the secretary got to go first here. And their position is really pretty simple. The letter wasn't a final decision. The letter that told Mr. Kearns that his appeal to the board was untimely was not a final appealable decision. So the court has no jurisdiction. And because the court has no jurisdiction in this appeal, the request for class certification is moot, and VA didn't do anything wrong, didn't violate the case Cerullo, which Amy touched on, when they fixed the problem with Mr. Kearns' board appeal, even though the appeal on the same issue was pending at the court. And so in Cerullo, if I'm remembering the facts correctly, after the veteran appealed to the court... He also filed something that the board construed as a motion for recon, or maybe even the board just sua sponte reconsidered the decision, and the Veterans Court said they can't do that. Once jurisdiction lies with the court, the board cannot do anything on the same case. Amy's prediction, or I should say guess, educated guess here, is that the court was really looking at what to do with Cerullo in the circumstance like here, where what the board did below while the appeal was pending actually helped the veteran. And I think there's some evidence that's what they're thinking of from the oral argument. But in terms of the secretary's argument, I really came away with two things. First, VA is having a tough time implementing at least some aspects of the AMA. So just as, you know, on the veteran side, people were all having a hard time understanding how this all is supposed to work. I think this case shows that so does the VA have a hard time. And then the second thing I really came away with from VA's argument was just the tension between the VA and the court when it comes to the scope of the court's authority to police VA's procedures Historically, the agency has been very clear about its position that it wants the court staying out of its business. And I think that really came pretty clear in this argument, too. Now, as to that first kind of theme that came up about the agency's own difficulties with AMA, the Secretary's Council chalked up a couple of times this pretty egregious error that they made here. 
to growing pains related to the AMA. So here's Secretary's Council kind of introducing this idea. The, the AMA is attempt to streamline. It's a drastic change in how we adjudicate claims um, that dates back decades. Um, and so there are some growing pains here, and this is one example of a growing pain. And uh, I hope that the board and the secretary's prompt action to try to um, remedy this uh, problem um, is uh, viewed favorably by this court. Some of the judges also caught on to this theme. Here's Judge Greenberg. Is this part of the growing pains you described earlier of the system? Yes, sir. And I, I think. Well, why should the veterans suffer the growing pains of this enormous administrative apparatus you have here? And are we not in a position <clears throat> to correct it? I don't think you are, Your Honor. And here's Judge Jaquith. Especially in a circumstance, uh, as you described it, of growing pains, why is the Secretary's uh, first reaction to attack the court's jurisdiction when there's been a valid or a notice of appeal? without engaging with the court, asking, following the Cerullo process and, and asking for. This last line of inquiry from Judge Shakeworth touches on the other theme of the secretary's argument, the tension between VA and at least some of the court when it comes to how much power the court has to tell VA what to do. Seems like some of the judges are thinking, why should we get involved when VA has already fixed the issue, at least with respect to this case? Because remember, Mr. Kearns' appeal has now been docketed back on the board. He's waiting in docket order for his decision, which was the relief he was seeking when he appealed the board's letter or decision, depending on who you ask, telling him that his appeal was untimely. So here's Judge Falvey raising these concerns. But do we have to even reach that? If, if Whether the letter is or is not a final decision... Mr. Kearns has been provided, there's nothing more he's asking of this court than what he's already been provided. There is no live controversy anymore. I don't, I don't disagree, Your Honor, and, that, and that's been the case since before the request for class action was filed in this court. Uh, I, this has been moved since May of 2020, I believe, um, previous, prior to even the secretary filing the July 2020 motion to dismiss. Assuming, of course, that the board could take the action that it took, um, given Cirillo. Correct, Your Honor. Yeah. Judge Falvey is going to reiterate this when he starts questioning appellant's counsel. We'll hear that a little bit later on. Yeah, and I think Judge Meredith is also thinking along the same lines as Judge Falvey. Here she is asking the Secretary's counsel about how the court would even apply Cerullo in this case. F following up on the Cerullo question and as to whether the court if we strictly applied Cerullo, would that require the court to void or nullify the actions taken in the May and August letters. So literally tell the board not to docket Mr. Kearns's appeal. But the thing about this case is that there's also a motion for class pending. So if that's granted, the fact that Mr. Kearns's individual case has been mooted doesn't necessarily moot the whole class. So that opens a whole new can of worms, even if they find Mr. Kearns's appeal or his requested remedy to have already been provided. I think that means they would still have to go on and address this class issue, which is a pretty thorny question. On the other end of the spectrum, we had some judges on the en banc panel who seemed a little more skeptical of VA's ability to fix his own procedures. So here's Judge Jaquith again. Yes, but since it took until August of 2021 for the board to provide notice and a remedial process for veterans like Mr. Kearns, who had their timely board appeal mistakenly rejected due to a calculation error, how would the board have realized and addressed this error if not for this appeal? I don't disagree, Ron. I, I, as we noted last time, I think Mr. Kern's uh, attempt to appeal this letter did highlight a problem. And Chief Judge Bartley also seemed unsatisfied by VA's position thus far that a class can't be certified because it would cost too many of VA's resources to identify all the members. And this goes back to what we were talking about a little bit in the intro. VA is saying we can't fix it for everybody because it would be too much of an administrative burden. 
specifically, they didn't track who got these letters. So they'd have to go through all of the NODs that they received during the relevant time manually and determine which letters were erroneous. So here's Chief Judge Bartley responding to that argument. So if the amended class that the appellant um, has suggested um, would meet all of the the requirements of rules um, 22 and 23, what would the basis be for denying certification based solely on VA's resource issues or resource constraints? And at least Chief Judge Bartley seemed pretty unsatisfied with VA's position thus far in this case that a class can't be certified because it would cost too many of VA's resources to identify all the members. VA has been arguing, as we touched on in the intro, that the class couldn't be certified because they didn't track who got these letters. So they would have to go through all of the NODs received during the relevant time period and manually determine which letters were erroneous. And according to VA, the process for doing this would be too burdensome. They didn't say they can't do it, but just that it would be too difficult. It's too hard. Now, overall, there really weren't a lot of surprises here. The secretary really stuck to his guns. There's no final decision, so the court couldn't do anything about it. And I have to say, I thought VA's counsel did a really professional job here. He kept his cool. He stuck to his point. Sometimes when you're backed into a corner, like he was a few times here, sticking to your position can be really tricky, but I really think he did a great job of it. I agree with that. I thought he did an excellent job and he did not come across as being stubborn in his position. He came across as just, and he was humble and he was, you know, he accepted that he was at some point, at a certain point, he said, I'm sounding like a broken record. And he accepted, yeah, I get that I'm sticking to this one point, but, and I think the judges did appreciate that. And as a listener, Um, I did too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He didn't come across as a jerk. And sometimes what people, when they're sticking to their guns and just stubbornly refusing to budge an inch, and he was stubbornly refusing to budge an inch on this primary point, but he was answering their questions Mm -hmm. and still saying that, be that as Mm -hmm. it may, our position still is that a letter is not a decision. And he was doing it in a way nicer way than I just said. That's an important skill for an oral advocate, and he's got it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and the appellant's counsel does, too. I thought he did a wonderful job. After after spending nearly an hour listening to poor Mr. Esterman get beaten up by nine of the judges on the Veterans Court. Well, really only five. (laughs) Four or five. Really three. So getting really beaten up by three, they would, they turn things over to Adam Luck, and it's his turn. And here's Adam right off the start. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court. Mr. Luck, would you please speak up some, or maybe hold the mic? Thank you. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Not better. Uh. <laughs> Outside voice. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I'll pretend I'm talking to my children. So that's a good lesson for oral argument, right, Amy? Pretend you're talking to your children. Always a good lesson. I think it depends on how you talk to your children, because personally, I vacillate between, oh, you're doing such a good job. I'm so proud of you. That's amazing that you tied your shoes this morning to get your clothes on immediately. So I dare you the next time you're in oral argument to please tell the judges that they're doing such a good job. (laughs) Or should I tell them to get their clothes on immediately in my mad mommy voice? Yeah, if they're just wearing their robes, you can tell them to just get their clothes on immediately. (laughs) That would be fun. So right off the bat, Adam gives the court two options. He says you can certify the class or you can fashion some other type of aggregate relief that would require the secretary to locate the claimants whose appeals were wrongfully closed. A good portion of the argument here in Adam's section focuses on mootness, because as Amy mentioned earlier, the board has now docketed his appeal, which is what he asked for when he went to the when he first went to the court. And so no harm, no foul. The appeal's been docketed. But he argues not only is this a class question, because there are all these other people 
out there we don't know about whose appeals were wrongfully terminated, but he argues that there's confusion about whether the board is going to consider the evidence that he submitted after he received that very first 90-day notice letter. Because once the appeal was at the court, the board then issued two more 90-day notice letters. And so he's concerned that the board is going to not address, not consider the evidence that he submitted after the first one because it wasn't submitted after the second or third one. So which 90-day notice period really applies? So here's Judge Allen jumping in on that. You're assuming, aren't you, that the board is now not going to consider the evidence that you submitted in the May window, the May window? You're, you're, you're assuming that, right? Well, this court's recent decision in Davis v. McDonough said that the 90-day window begins when the notice of appeal is received at the board. All right. So most of the questioning in this section comes from Judge Meredith, who, no surprise here, leans on the jurisdictional question and the notion that the board, any day now, any day, the board could issue a decision. And who are we to stand in the board's way of issuing a decision? Here's Judge Meredith. So if your view is that Cerullo applies and that those actions taken after the NOA was filed here are void, are you asking the court to remove, direct VA to remove Mr. Kearns' appeal from the board's docket? To remand for the board to comply with the requirements of 20.104C, which would include docketing under the appropriate authority and clarifying the correct 90 days or even assigning a new 90-day period so that Mr. Kearns can understand the precise start and stop dates and when he can submit arguments if the actions are void, though, why, under your theory, we should tell the board now, remove it, don't make a merits decision. If they make a merits decision in the next couple of months, perhaps before we issue an opinion, would that also be void in your view? I think it would, Your Honor. So we all know that the board is not issuing decisions in a timely manner. And the whole notion that the board would issue a decision right now on a 10-182 that was filed in December 2020 is not likely unless there's an advance on docket. According uh, to the VA in the Ray oral argument, you just never know when they're going to issue a decision. Nobody knows, not even them. And so this is, <laughs> which is, yeah, true. here's the information that Judge Meredith is going on. So we know they're not going to get a decision, um, but nobody really you knows. never know. Yeah. Nobody really it's knows. It's a crap shoot. Could Who be knows? tomorrow, could be 2032. Yeah, so Judge Falvey jumps in, and most of the questioning here in this section is really coming from Judge Meredith and Judge Falvey. But he jumps in and reveals what the real reason, the real reason that this case is being heard here on Bonk. So if he, if, if, if right now today here on YouTube, Secretary's Council conceded, yes, we'll give you 90 days, that's, that's completely mooted out. Otherwise, you'd rather take your chances that uh, the board decision um, comes out before we issue an opinion it's completely favorable to you, and your argument is today it's void. I believe it's void because of Cerullo, Your Honor. Well, we have the en banc court here. We could scrap that whole thing today. That is fair. <laughs> uh, we could do it by a show of hands, maybe. So if the court's going to overturn Cerullo, it can do so only if it's sitting on bonk. So Adam goes and argues that there's still harm, even if Cerullo is overturned, even if Cerullo goes away, there's still harm to him because of the confusion that the board created when it issued those three 90-day notice letters, some of which, of course, said that the claimant had 60 days to submit evidence. There, there were very strange notice letters, but that created confusion for him and of course, the ongoing harm for what he estimates to be 1,200 uh, potential class members who also all had their appeals wrongfully dismissed is untimely. Judge Toth jumps in at this section and asks what I think is a pretty valid question about why 
Adam didn't challenge this through a petition. But Adam's response here, I think, is really is really great. He relies on the Gardner-Dixon case, which says that if an appeal is available, the petition is not appropriate. He also says, and this is the part of his argument that I really did love, he adds that this isn't an extraordinary circumstance because the board has and continues to wrongfully terminate these appeals. I thought that was a really great point to get around the, why didn't you just file a petition instead of making us go through all these gymnastics over is a letter of final decision from the board. Mm -hmm. Judge Meredith jumps in and asks, what would be the more veteran-friendly approach here to force veterans into a formal appeal process if they just disagree with the board letter or to allow for a more informal process? And of course, Adam says that certifying a class so the secretary has to locate the people whose appeals are terminated is the most veteran-friendly approach. But Judge Meredith stuck on the letter is not a decision point. And here's what she has to say about that. And without the secretary's efforts to go locate these people and inform them that their rights have been violated, those people are being disposed of that they don't matter. Would you, are you, by elevating the letter to a status of a final board decision, you now, that would apply across the board to anyone who received a letter who wanted to maybe just call and say, I think you made a mistake. And now are they going to be forced into this formal process of having to seek reconsideration or appeal to the court, something that could have been handled through a phone call? Okay, so this is a really cute response to really just call the board, just pick up the phone and call the board. The other thing that kind of bothered me about this line of questioning is that I don't understand why this wouldn't be a final decision. There's a Supreme Court case out there called Smith versus Berryhill that deals with Social Security. And as we know, there's a lot of analogous rules and procedures here with the with VA. But anyway, in this case, Smith versus Berryhill, the Supreme Court said if it's the terminal event, if the document marks the terminal event in the claim, then it's a final decision. And as I understand, this letter told Mr. Kearns, your appeal wasn't timely, you're done. I don't understand what more legally they needed to do to have issued a final decision. You're absolutely right. Not only did it say your appeal is untimely, you're done. It says we will take no further action mm -hmm. without anything happening from you. So the board, it while it does not say this is a final decision of the board, it does not include those magic words. It's a final decision as to the timeliness of his appeal. In the initial argument with the initial panel, VA was talking about how I guess it was an informal process that the board had set up where they would send you this letter from like the like an administrative staff person and then you could ask for reconsideration and then you would get a board decision. I haven't seen the letter so I don't know if it explained all that maybe that would affect the analysis but Chief Judge Bartley grilled VA on this in the first panel decision like where is that in a regulation or a statute or anything it's just some informal process that the board instituted as part of its AMA rollout. And I think, and I don't think that's the process anymore. And I think this just further highlights like this AMA rollout, it's messy at the board. So was this informal process, we're going to just have like some administrative functionary dismiss mm -hmm. all these appeals just randomly and see if it's stuck. Yeah, and if you don't like it, then it's on you to initiate further proceedings, even though you've done everything statutorily required to get, you've already yes, appealed. To get a final decision from the board. You have to do more when we tell you to. It just, it's, it just does not sit right with me at all. Wow. 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 I, I Full disclosure, I did not listen to the first oral argument. Good for you. I Matt. started listening to the wrong one. So don't give me too much credit here. Well, Amy, what are your predictions here? Yeah, same. 
I don't know. I think we're going to have a, a, a Percy of Alley type chopped up opinion. I think, I, I think Chief Judge Bartley, Judge Greenberg, and Judge Jaquith are on Mr. Kearns's side. They, I think they're going to agree with him. In term, probably in terms of is the letter a final board decision? I think they will say yes. A letter that is the final say on this legal issue is a final, can, can be treated as a final board decision. I think they will, those three will say yes. I think judges Falvey, Meredith, and Allen will say no. And maybe they'll be joined by Judge Toth, maybe Lauer, maybe Peach. I don't think a class will be certified, and I just have a feeling the court's going to punt on jurisdiction on this one. Yeah. How about you? The only thing that I can say I feel confident about is that it's going to be a highly fractured decision. Agree. I I don't know. I can see this getting booted out on mootness, but Mm. then that still leaves the question about the class, so maybe not. And my... My concern is if this gets booted on mootness or jurisdiction and we never get to the class issue, which frankly, I think Mr. Kearns has a high, an uphill battle here with class anyway after score and Freund. Yeah. yeah. But how are we going to make sure that VA fixes this big mistake? So far, what they've said is we're not going to go out and affirmatively notify these individuals. But we did put on our website, on the board's website, that if you think you got this one of these letters in error, you should contact us. But like, and they put a deadline on did. that. That's already. And I don't know if I don't know if they changed it. I guess I could have checked before we got online, but I was too lazy to do that. But even assuming they changed it, like how many people are just hanging out on the board's website? I, I only go there to see their numbers sometimes in terms of and what veteran is going to a there's a lot of older veterans who are not web savvy they're not online all the time b if you get a decision if you get a letter from va saying you're too late who would think oh let me go and to the board's website and check to see if they made a mistake you just assume as we are supposed to assume in administrative law, that government officials are doing the correct mm-hmm. thing. There is this presumption of administrative regularity. And and so VA is putting the onus on the veteran whose appeal was wrongly terminated to find out and make sure that, that VA really did make a mistake mm-hmm. and contact them maybe last year. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't either. I like the next case a little bit better, assuming that it comes out the way that I want it to. <laughs> so that's it. That's a pretty big assumption. And you know what they say about assumptions, don't you? They make an ass out of you and me. You and me. <laughs> okay, so this case is Ferkel versus McDonough. It was argued before the Veterans Court on June 22nd. Michael Eisenberg argued for the veteran, and Lori Jemison appeared on behalf of the secretary. Toth, Laura, and retired Judge Sholin were on the panel. So we got a guest appearance by retired Judge Sholin. How did that happen, Amy? I know you were her clerk, so you have all the inside baseball information. How did a retired judge get on the panel? You don't see that very often. Yes, and I talk to her every day, so I didn't know I don't. So I, but it is actually, it's in the IOP, it's in in the court's internal operating procedures. It's actually within the discretion of the senior judge. If they want to, if they get a case and it gets called to panel, it's within their discretion to stay on the Mm. panel. And, and she being the righteous senior judge that she's, oh, hell yeah, I'm staying on this panel. Yeah. And uh, that's why she was there. And I'm glad she was. I thought she asked some really, really important questions. I don't blame her. This is a really exciting case because the best place to start with this case is actually an oral argument in a totally different case, Ariano versus McDonough. And now you might recall that this is the veterans case that was recently decided by the Supreme Court about equitable tolling and the effective dates for benefits under 38 U.S.C. 5110. Mr. Ariano did not win, unfortunately, in that case. 
But during the oral argument, there was this uh, discussion between Justice Jackson, Justice Sotomayor, and the Veterans Council about whether the individual regional office adjudicator even has the authority to apply equitable tolling. There's some school of thought out there that agencies don't have equitable powers the way that even Article I courts like the Veterans Court does, or at least line adjudicators within the agency don't. So how would a line adjudicator even apply equitable tolling? And in this case, the question is, in Mr. Furco's case, the question is whether the one-year deadline for a filing a notice of disagreement should be equitably told. And the theory was that the RO should have told it or the board should have told it. And this case, I think, was called to further explore the issues that were discussed a little bit in the oral argument for Ariano. So the facts of these ca- this case is that the veteran su- submitted his notice of disagreement like 15 days after a November 20, 2005 deadline. So we're not talking like 20 years, three years, even a year. Like we're talking 15 days, just days. And his theory was there was a November 2005 deadline, but he'd had heart surgery in March 2005. And he was unable to file the notice of disagreement in a timely manner because he was recovering from that surgery. So the argument actually started with some helpful kind of housekeeping hints for oral advocates from Judge Toth. Personally, whenever I'm at the podium, I get real anxious when I see that red light come on when I'm mid-sentence. And I'll stop mid-sentence to say something like, I see my time is about to expire. May I finish my answer? And so it turns out that I've actually been doing it wrong. Um, you know, so I'll just note one thing, housekeeping. Um, if we're asking questions, you can continue to answer even if you're beyond your time limit. Um, if um, you reach the time limit and you need more time, just ask for a minute or two extension. We'll oblige. Okay. Something I'll keep in mind in the future, don't be awkward. As the argument got underway, Judge Toast started focusing on 38 CFR 3.109B, and this is a regulation that says that VA will extend a deadline, including a deadline to an appeal a decision, if the claimant shows good cause. What would um, veterans gain generally from, I mean, there's already a regulation that allows for extensions of time. Um, what, what would... The, the court doctrine imposing equitable tolling sort of add for veterans, or even in this case? Later, VA's counsel agreed that under this regulation, you could submit a request for an extension at any time after the due date, even 10 years after the due date, and VA would still have to consider it. So I think that 3.109B is a really helpful tool, especially when the claimant is only six days late. Like again, here, Mr. Furco was only 15 days late. Judge Toth notes later in the argument that good cause is a way lower standard than extraordinary circumstance, which is what you have to show to get equitable tolling. So I think there's even case law that says miscalendering a date can be good cause in some venues. And certainly at the Veterans Court, I mean, you can get an extension, a 45-day extension for your brief, just your good cause is I need more time. So good cause is a pretty pretty low bar and is certainly lower than extraordinary circumstances. So I just wanted to point out that I think Judge Toth is onto something here with 3.109B. And if you think you can show good cause as a veteran or an advocate, you should really invoke it. Were you aware of this regulation before? Was it even on your radar before? Maybe vaguely, but it was really this argument that I was like, hey. And so since then, I've been pretty laser focused on it. And I think it's not just me. And I also think like the agency doesn't apply it very often. I'll get to, a little bit later, I'll get to why I think my theory is correct. But Judge Sholin, she pointed out that's all well and good about this regulation, but equitable tolling can have its advantages too, specifically this doctrine called the stop clock approach. Might the difference be uh, the stop clock versus the board seem to require or um, imply that because he had seven months subsequent to his surgery that uh, he had time, so the good co- there was no more good cause. But under stop clock, because it would stop the clock, it buys you an automatic number of extra days. 
But all these questions about the reg, we're just kicking around the main question here. Does equitable tolling even apply to the notice of disagreement requirement or the deadline for the notice of disagreement? Judge Sholin had a really good description of how this analysis should go. So the way that I sort of approach this is, you know, first, is the question jurisdictional or not? Um, the statute jurisdictional or not? And then the next step, assuming it's not kind of the Arellano uh, um, inquiry of should equitable tolling be applied? And that's where I'd like to talk to you a little bit. Yes, ma'am. Um, how do we, the fact that the regulation that Judge Toth was discussing with you, 3.109B, provides a good cause extension, uh, what does that do to the question of whether equitable tolling should be available? Then there was some back and forth about 7105's mandatory slash prescriptive language, which I think were aimed at whether the deadline is actually jurisdictional or not. And then there were a lot of questions about whether, even if it's not jurisdictional, Congress could have intended equitable tolling to apply to the deadline. A lot of this centered on whether 3.109B and or whether the existence of 3.109B meant that Congress could not have intended equitable tolling apply to 7105 because the regulation already allows VA to grant extensions. So why should the court have power to do that as well? There's already like an administrative process for it. Judge Shulin also wanted to know what evidence there was that the veteran exercised due diligence during the extraordinary circumstance, i.e. when he was recovering from the heart surgery. But it wasn't until the end that Judge Laura really got into the big question that can someday find its way up to the Supreme Court. Here he is talking about a Supreme Court case called Sibelius versus Auburn Regional Medical Center, in which the Supreme Court held that equitable tolling is generally applied only by courts and left open the question whether an agency can exercise equitable powers without an express grant of equitable authority from Congress. Mr. Eisenberg, yes, uh, Judge Toth asked you uh, about Sibelius. I have a, a little different question related to Sibelius. Mm -hmm. So in that case, the Supreme Court um, said that it had never applied the Irwin presumption to an agency's internal appeal deadline. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's essentially what the appellant is requesting that this court do. And so my question is, how uh, would we reconcile, would this court reconcile uh, that statement in the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Sibelius? It seemed like we were really going to get into this question in the rebuttal, but Judge Toth dropped the mic with this. Well, I, I guess the, the point would be, you, I mean, you don't need us to recognize equitable tolling to win, right? I mean, I mean, we could review the propriety of the board's finding that the, that that. Um, Mr. Virgo hadn't demonstrated good cause. I mean, that's something that's currently on appeal to us. I mean, the reg, I think, is an easier sell than us both imposing and finding equitable tolling, right? So that I think that may have opened a little window into how he's thinking about this case. And I like the way he's thinking. I'd be pretty happy here with a ruling about 3.109 and how you don't need equitable tolling when it comes to the NOD deadline. Now, well, and the NOD deadline should not be more strict, more stringent than the deadline to appeal up to the Veterans Court. I agree. And, and so there, there's the Veterans Court changed its rules to allow for late filing of notice of appeal. And so the notion now that you can be 30 days late when you're with your appeal up to the Veterans Court, no harm, no foul. Five days late, 15 days late to appeal to the board right. and you're out. Yeah, I don't think, I can't see the deadline being jurisdictional based on all the law that we've gotten out of the Supreme Court recently. I, but I think this question about the reg and why did Congress, at least when they, when they passed AMA and they amended 7105, would they? I know for sure that the reg existed at that point. Could they have intended that equitable and tolling apply when we already had this regulation? I think that's a really interesting question. I, and I hope they don't reach it because <laughs> I hope they say 
doesn't matter. We have this reg and they need to apply the reg or their good cause because they did. The board did make a finding that he hadn't shown good cause in this case. And so I hope they just review that and clarify what you need to show under 3.109. But as because as expected, Secretary's counsel argue that equitable tolling does not apply to the one year deadline for filing an NOD and applying to applying equitable tolling to the NOD deadline would somehow upend their process because there'd be too many claims or something like that. But I just wanted to highlight a couple of things from the secretary's argument. First, in following the line of reasoning that the existence of the good cause reg means that equitable tolling can't apply to the NOD time limit, she suggested that the purpose of the reg was to make whole folks who didn't get adequate notice of a decision. I just want to point out here that the scenario she describes where the veteran gets inadequate notice or improper notice of a decision Under that scenario, the time for filing the NOD does not begin to run until the veteran gets adequate notice. Like 7105's one-year deadline wouldn't even be triggered until the proper notice was provided. That's actually in a case that I argued recently, Weicker versus McDonough, and the court agreed with me. If there's no proper notice and the one-year NOD time period doesn't begin to run. So you know, VA's suggestion here that claimants need 3.109B to correct this kind of situation is just plainly wrong. And the other thing I wanted to highlight is this exchange that she had with Judge Toth. I mean, the optics of this don't look great for the agency. I mean, you have a veteran who asked for a one-week extension of time, to, to, and then the agency takes 15 years to basically adjudicate that and says, no, he can't have a week, but it takes us 15 years. I mean, that doesn't look good. I agree with you, Your Honor. So this gets back to my theory, Amy, that I think VA itself is underutilizing 3.109B. Like, adjudicators should be trained to understand that when a claimant requests an extension even after the deadline, the adjudicators have to respond under 3.109. They can't just ignore it because the veteran missed the deadline. The reg requires that you submit the thing that you were supposed to submit before the deadline, either with your extension or before your extension. So there's no reason why this just was floating out there in purgatory for 15 years. The VA line adjudicators should have responded to it. And personally, I have not seen a whole lot on this regulation, like even in board decisions, which says to me that neither advocates nor the agency are regularly identifying situations when 3.109B applies and like I said, prior to this argument, that included me. So my prediction here, or my hope, I should say, is that we're going to avoid the whole equitable tolling issue and get at what Toth suggested the court could do, a decision on the board's good cause analysis, and maybe even a holding of the stop clock approach applies under 3.109B so that this vet actually gets a few extra months. And since his NOG was only 15 days late, the NOG would actually be timely. So we have hopes for this yeah. case. We don't have predictions, but hopes are hope hope is good. It's good to have hope. The next case we're going to talk about is the Bolds case. And this was argued on June 21st, 2023 before Chief Judge Bartley uh, and Judges Peach and Greenberg. Jonathan Davis represented the veteran Michelle Bolds and Jonathan Scruggs represented the secretary. So the in this case, the parties, the parties who are here, agreed back in, in December 2021, they agreed to a JMR, and that JMR included terms that would have allowed Ms. Bowles to submit new evidence to the board. On remand, the board refuses to consider that new evidence because this was an AMA appeal. And the issue here is whether the parties in an appeal to the court can negotiate the terms in the JMR that maybe carve out an exception to the evidentiary review statute that's in the AMA. The appellant argued here in the briefing that Andrews didn't apply because Ms. Bolds had previously chosen the hearing docket and Andrews was limited to the direct review docket, which I thought was a very good way to stick Andrews in a little bit of a direct review box since VA likes its boxes. The appellant also argued that the secretary violated procedural due process by promising one thing in the JMR and then reneging on the deal on the actual remand. 
Chief Judge Bartley spends the first part of the oral argument really doing a magnificent job of trying mightily to help the appellant in this case, but he's not buying any of it. First, she asks him to flesh out his argument that she should be able to return to the hearing docket. And she even provides him, Chief Judge Bartley provides him with legal support for this argument. But there is a regulation 20.700A that um, applies specifically to the hearing docket at the board and says that you get one hearing on appeal, but that um, requests for additional board hearings may be granted for good cause. Do you think that the JMR in this case was good cause? Yes, Your Honor, because it highlighted evidence that was before the board and needed to be explained uh, before a final resolution on this appeal could happen. Next, uh, Chief Judge Bartley gives the appellant's counsel another argument based on the boilerplate language that is included in all the JMRs these days. Any statements made herein shall not be construed as statements of policy or the interpretation of any statute, regulation, or policy by the secretary. Does that have any um, import here? Honestly, Your Honor, I would say that that's boilerplate language that should pretty much be disregarded as it applies to the facts of Ms. Bold's case. So Chief Judge Bartley's point here was that this boilerplate statement actually helps Ms. Bold's because it allows the parties to include language in the JMR that only applies to the parties and is not a statement of policy or interpretation of law, et cetera. I think this is a great point and a pretty useful way to think about this language as a negotiating tool. You can say that, okay, we can carve out whatever exception to what is normally the rule but it, by putting in this language, it says it's not it's not something that the secretary is saying is an interpretation of a statute or regulation or a statement of policy. I think this is a great point to be made. The other thing that I think Chief Judge Bartley was trying to steer the attorney here towards is that the idea that the record rules under 7113 are claims processing rules that can be waived. And so when VA enters into an agreement that a veteran can submit new evidence on remand to the board, that could be construed as a waiver of the claim processing rules under 7113, but the attorney did not bite on that here. Yeah. And the attorney for the secretary was fighting that pretty hard. Towards the end of his argument, and I don't think I included a bite about that here, but was really sticking to, hey, there was no waiver. Yeah. But at, why not? Why couldn't the language, as it was included in the JMR, be construed as a waiver? Yeah, that's um, actually coming before a panel. It's before a panel right now in a case called Caro, K-A-R-A-U, oral argument, TBD. But we should be getting a decision on that, hopefully. Then that came up in Edwards. Judge Stoth was asking a lot of questions about that during the Edwards oral argument, if I remember. All right. On to the secretary's argument. The secretary's argument was basically it was a mistake to include the boilerplate Kucherowski language in the JMR. The secretary owns that mistake, apologizes for that mistake and regrets that the mistake was not discovered at a time when it could have been rectified. However, that mistake cannot create a right where it is contrary to statute. So the court is supposed to excuse the secretary's mistake, a mistake that's favorable to the veteran, and was made by a senior attorney at OGC, not a newbie, a senior attorney at OGC, and the court is just supposed to excuse that as a mistake. The chief asked the secretary's counsel the same question about the boilerplate language in the JMR that she's reading as being favorable to Ms. Bolds. The language that said any statement cannot be should not be construed as an interpretation of law, et cetera. Here's the chief. So it wouldn't be an interpretation of 7113. And if it's not an interpretation of 7113, how could it be contrary to the provisions of 7113? Again, I've got to reiterate, this is a really great point and a useful way for advocates to to look at that language. The Secretary's counsel here 
sticks to his position that the boilerplate language is contrary to statute, regulation, and Andrews. The boilerplate language, meaning the boilerplate language that mistakenly made it into the JMR. And the Secretary's counsel points out that Ms. Bowles already filed a supplemental claim, which is, of course, VA's cure-all for all problems. And every dilemma can be solved with just filing a supplemental claim. And she's already received a decision. Of course, it's another denial. And she's already appealed that to the board. So what's the problem? Here's the Secretary's counsel again. And then the last point I would just make, um, Your Honor, is because of the continuous pursuit feature um, of the AMA, there is also no no prejudice in, in terms of being made whole because if the claims uh, were ever granted, um, then she would have the benefit of the com- continuous pursuit. So quite frankly, uh, appellant's case is an example of the AMA system working. So this, to me, was one of the more disturbing moments of this oral argument. The, secret- the notion that the secretary believes that getting to appeal the same issue over and over again after it's been back up to the court and back, and after the secretary agreed in a JMR, they made an agreement in a JMR that would have allowed the appellant to submit new evidence directly to the board and get a decision on that evidence. The notion that that is an example of the AMA working, it's it's an example of the hamster wheel working, not the AMA. Chief Judge Bartley then repeats her question about the JMA being good cause for a second hearing but the secretary's counsel here continu- continues to lean into section 7113. As the court noted in Andrews, all of the evidentiary windows closed prior to the initial board decision and they don't reopen. And so there will be uh, no further board hearing, even though that case returns to the board hearing docket. This is the second most disturbing part of the argument. The notion that you're not allowed to get another hearing even if you return to the hearing docket. The Chief Judge Bartley really latches on to the Catch-22 mojo of this response. And so even though there is this provision um, for a board hearing, for a second board hearing for good cause, and even though the appellant is returning, this is the Secretary's position, even though an appellant is returning to the board hearing docket, which allows an additional board hearing for good cause, you're saying that regulation should have said um, you can get a second board hearing for good cause only if you request it before the evidentiary window as defined in Andrews closes. The Secretary's Council hedges a little bit after this and gets out of it by pointing out that, and this is also a great point, hey, this wasn't raised in the briefing, so I'm backing off now. If you want us to dig into this a little bit more, we'll provide supplemental briefing. But we didn't brief this, so I'm not answering. On rebuttal, I thought the appellant's counsel did finish strongly with three pretty solid points. First, the error was not made harmless by filing a supplemental claim when she had the right under the terms of the JMR to have a veterans law judge at the board review her evidence and make a good decision based on that evidence. Second, Andrews had been decided when the parties entered into the JMR, so Andrews was already the law. And third, Andrews involved the direct review docket. I don't like Andrews. I don't think I, I don't think many of us like Andrews, but to I think Andrews should be put in a box and it should be put into the direct review docket box and stay there only. Okay, predictions. I think I think the majority will, I'm I hope the majority here will clarify that Andrews doesn't apply to appeals that were in the hearing docket, maybe also in the evidence docket. Maybe they'll clarify that Andrews only applies to appeals where the appellant checked the direct review box. I think if Judge Peach dissents, she'll likely do so on harmless error, although I hope that the court understands that filing a supplemental claim and waiting years and years and years for the board to adjudicate that appeal is not harmless. Amy? 
I think you and I have different opinions on Andrews. I'm not as repulsed by it as you are. (laughs) I actually think that, I think Andrews came out right based on the statute. I think the problem is the statute. I think the problem is the AMA. Here's another, it's a bug to veterans advocates. It's a feature to the VA. They don't want to have to re-adjudicate all these claims based on new evidence as they come back from the court. They don't even want things coming back from the court. If you read the chairman's most recent annual report, you get the the, you get the feeling that the chairman believes that it's remands from the court that are clogging up the board's dockets. So they're trying to clear out those dockets as soon as they can. But I think this I, this question about the hearing lane, whether there's a major distinction between the direct lane and the hearing lane is pretty interesting because also what happens if there's a Brian error? Like you remember Brian is the case that says that the veterans law judge has to identify issues still outstanding and suggest the submission of evidence that could substantiate the claim. And if you don't get, if the veterans law judge doesn't do that and you come out to court and you make a Brian argument, it's remanded for, an, I, I think, a new hearing. So what are they going to say? No, we can't comply with Brian because 7113. And that's why I think the secretary's counsel backed out of getting into that argument by saying it wasn't briefed. Yeah, that's probably the smart thing to do. All right. Well, that's it for our first episode of Arguendo. Yeah, I hope that you guys will join us again. We hope to put out more episodes just like this, and we hope that you'll join us. See ya. See ya.